Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. We will be recapping the Tokyo Olympics and looking ahead to Rafa Nadal, uh, heading on to Washington, D.C. in this show and uh, beginning with Tokyo. And we covered going into this these games that the Olympics have been a difficult place for Novak Djokovic. And it's fair to say that has continued as he had a very, very difficult 48 hours, really, from the Alexander Zverev um, semifinal match, which he lost in three sets after looking into con- in control to losing at um, the mixed doubles thereafter that. And then ultimately losing the bronze medal match to Pablo Carreño Busta. And then a lot of things going on off the court that that put Novak in a bad light. Both some things that might be fair and then a lot of things that are, are unfair. So we leave Tokyo and certainly Djokovic won't be satisfied with his trip. But Amy, what do you uh, what are your biggest takeaways and, and how do you feel about Djokovic's 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games. Wow, it was really eventful. And I really did not see that coming. I don't think any of us did. We all thought, well, this is a great decision for him to just take a flyer and to play the Olympics because it's it's sort of a can't lose proposition. You know, if if he doesn't win gold, then he's still got the calendar slam and you know, he gave it his all and tried his best, played for country. Um I don't think I saw that he would be in some sort of a cultural firestorm on multiple fronts. Uh, But he said that he would bounce back, and I really think that he will. I think the whole situation with everything that happened in those 48 hours um, is very layered and nuanced, and there's really different um, subjects and topics so um, hopefully we can address it here and, and get into some good discussion. Yeah, it was quite a time for Novak. It's so interesting how it went. I mean, we saw he was just rolling through these early rounds, doing well, and he's going to play Zverev. Oh, well, he lost. Well, that's, that's unfortunate. That happens. But then, then some other things, including the um, uh, throwing the rackets and breaking the rackets when he's playing uh, Karina Busta, who we played at the U.S. Open. That was his U.S. Open match with the with the uh where he hit the ball and uh that was unfortunate i feel particularly bad for his mixed doubles partner and novak cited a shoulder injury and uh i hope he recovers from that but it's just it's a cascade of a few things that just uh i don't know it's unfortunate because again i thought i thought he was seemed on path to win the olympics though i will say we'll say for what it's worth and i know this sounds a little persnickety the the concept golden slam kind of vexes me a little bit as a tennis person. Now it seems like the super duper bowl. It's like <laughs> the slam itself is pretty darn good. So then when it's got called the golden slam, which Graf did after she'd already won the first four. 
So this was in the middle, but uh, I don't know. I, th- I think Novak, he's got a, I think he's going to rebound quite fine. I mean, he's had adverse moments that involve non-tennis stuff and emotions, and he, he seems to snap out of those pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's, let's start where you ended, Joel. And again, there are a lot of things to cover from the on-court frustrations and, as, as Joel, you alluded to, um, throwing the racket into the empty stands and all that, to comments he made that have been really objectively completely unfairly twisted by, by certain media outlets and journalists out there. But let's start with, with losing the Golden Slam first. Coming in, I think we all had different feelings on what the Olympics mean um, in terms of a, a tennis player's career. But we all kind of landed on if Novak wins New York, no one's really going to look back in 10 years from now and say, well, remember... 2021 that was the year that yeah Novak won the Grand Slam but he lost at the Olympics so you know he really lost a big chance that will feel like such a sub note a sub note of a sub note in what would ultimately be this historically dominant year from Novak Djokovic I agree with that I do think though that it could have been even more of a sub note if things had gone just more smoothly or by the book and he had just lost without incident um i I do think though that um he's still got this remarkable chance for greatness and that in the end when we're looking back if he does go on to win the calendar slam we'll think of all these different things that happened to him over the course of the pandemic and yet he was able to prevail um, throughout all these bumps and bruises. So I I do think that the chance for sort of immortality, if you will, is still there. Absolutely. Look, even if he doesn't win a match the rest of this year, he's incredible. I mean, he's won the first three majors and he's favored to win the fourth. Uh, Didn't help his cause on the lovability front with the temper stuff. I mean, I have to say that not one of his finest hours to try to be a great player and and a sportsman and all the things that he knows. And he knows that. I mean, that's a, I, he knows that and his his contrition and he will move forward. I mean, he's not going to kind of rationalize. It. I think he's kind of classy in realizing his humanity. I mean, he speaks about that and he's aware of that. But I think, again, that that, you know, it's so interesting to show how we jockey around the the Federer fans, the Nadal fans, the Djokovic fans, how they all feel about these players. But this this was not one of no- Novak's most uh, shining moments with the with the temper tantrum stuff. I think he knows it's a it's a flaw. He's been asked about it before. He's spoken about it before. He's not proud of the fact that sometimes he lets the emotions get the better of him, and and that he he loses control of his temper and and it comes out in ways where he's outwardly taking out his frustrations on his racket or a tennis ball or something. But I think the one thing, you know, the way I look at it is perfection isn't always what is attractive to, to people in terms of, you know, who you like, who you love, what you forgive, uh, what you connect to. And I don't blame anyone who thinks less of Novak Djokovic because he smashes a racket occasionally. I also don't think less of anyone who says, 
I prefer Nadal. That is what I like, right? I, you know, one thing that I never want to do is tell people who they should like and why. Uh, but certainly the fact that that Djokovic sometimes does lose control, that is part of him. And, and it is a flaw that I think he would admit to. What if you're somebody like me who actually likes both of them, you know, for, for who they are um, and, sure. and for the, you know, for the flaws and, and the great things. I mean, what's interesting to me about Novak right now is, and it's really unlike the other two, Nadal and Federer, Novak to me right now is like this giant mirror of who we are as a human race. We're, we're living in these times that are flawed and, and tumultuous, and yet there are these moments of greatness as well. And um, I, I just think that he's reflective of all of us and, and as human beings. And that's, you know, why I really am a fan of his. But in terms of the racket um, antics, uh, I noticed that when he toss the racket into the stands it might be a minor minor thing but I noticed that he he gave it a look and he I think if I'm reading it right he saw that there wasn't anyone there before he tossed it so maybe you know I'm I'm letting him off easy or or whatever but I think that's an upgrade over what happened at the U.S. Open um, but the other thing that I, I always, because I wrote a big, big story on this and I put a ton of research into it. The other thing that I'm always looking at is how we um, perceive or um, treat men when they lose their temper versus women when they lose their temper. And I know that Pablo Carreno Busto was questioning why it did not seem that Djokovic was either given a warning or a penalty on the second abusive racket. And, you know, we know from what happened to Serena Williams that um, she was judged very harshly and penalized very harshly for that. So there may be something because it was the Olympics with different rules or something like that. But I'm, I've always got my antennas up because I did a lot of research on this. And I, I did my research and my data did find that women are penalized more harshly for these kinds of things. That being said, just looking at the incident with Novak, um, I do believe that players should be allowed to vent and there is room for that as long as it's within the rules. And, and nobody gets hurt. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm sure they hadn't accommodated the uh, if the if you throw the racket and there's no one in the stands. <laughs> these are very and, and I like I like your view of the broader culture, Amy. I think that's really fascinating, and I think that's one of the things that makes tennis compelling. We've got individuals, and they're existing in times and in places, and and the things that occur. And again, our own self that relates to them. I mean, I think the fun part about following tennis year after year is how our emotions change and our own relationships to people change and to ourselves. I mean, I used to, um, to go way back, I used to win sportsmanship awards when I didn't like Jimmy Connors. But then when I started to see why I liked Jimmy Connors, it helped me win more matches because I saw something else going on, what the game was about. So there's this, this sense of coming to ourselves and the game and just watching for the game, but also the connection. I think one of the reasons the sport constantly succeeds in spite of all the things that can happen in tennis is the elemental 
relationship of watching like Agassiz is two people trying to figure things out. And that's what we're all trying to do. So yeah, you're very aware of Novak's humanity. And I agree with that. And the fact that he recognizes that and he, and he struggles with that and he tries to figure it out. And I agree completely that this was, uh, this was something less so than what happened at the U.S. Open. But it's going to be, and again, and it's just going to be uh, intriguing to see. And then we've got two other guys. Um, you know, Nadal is unbelievable how he does things, but, he, you know, he has his ways of how he behaves in other ways, too. So it's interesting how they all, they, they, Nadal was taught by his uncle and all these different lessons. It's very interesting. They have all made mistakes. Um, we don't need to go through all of them, but all of them have made mistakes. Um, to, to get a little bit granular, I feel like there's a difference between throwing the racket in the crowd, um, even empty stands, and smashing a racket. One seems just a little bit more in control and just a little bit less hazardous. Um, and I, I do think that that, you know, I never have an issue with a smashed racket. I do think that if, uh, I do think that he shouldn't do things like throwing racket into an empty stands. I do think that that it's um, it could be a hazard. And even if he looked and he checked, uh, it just has the appearance of being a little bit more out of control. But I have no problem with with racket smashing, really. And I get people who do. Uh, but I don't believe in monkey see, monkey do. And I think we should uh, address this. We might have different feelings on this. But the idea, I think, that what Nadal would say is you shouldn't smash racket. It's a bad example for the kids. And that, you know, there are children who would love to have a tennis racket in, in the first place. Uh, and that it's an expensive piece of equipment and that you shouldn't treat it that way. And I totally see where, where that line of thought comes from. And I think, uh, I, again, I get that, but that is like, should there be, um, should MMA not be a sport because anyone who watches is going to start beating people up. And I don't believe whoa, whoa, in whoa, that. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. MMA, those are the rules of MMA. The rule of tennis is you're not supposed to break your racket. That's the a rule, rule that we agree the, to. The rule is you get a warning. Uh, right. Yeah, so, the rule so is you, you get a warning. And he didn't get That's a fine. warning, did he? He, he should have gotten a warning. That's another Yeah, discussion. and but, then he might not do the second one. It's like well, Novak yeah. is really good at calibrating that kind of thing. Like he'll get a warning for slow play and then he won't play. He won't get anywhere near that again. So why the chairs do this, yeah. I just don't get it. I agree by, by letter of the law. Like that's, it's insane that he didn't get a warning, but do we have a problem every time a player smashes a racket? Is that always an well, issue? I'll okay. I'll tell you, I'll talk it this way. Look, first of all, the pros get the rackets for free and they're playing for high stakes and money yeah. as a behavior model though. And this is where I went. My pilgrim's progress through emotions of being repressed in sports rewards. Then I went through this expressive stage and then it was what I'm doing with this. And I'll get, I'll, I'll use a temper tantrum as a connection to the racket. I was playing someone once and he started, he kept losing his temper at times. And finally I said to him, I said, am I that bad? <laughs> am I that bad a player that you're, I mean, why are you, why are you insulting me by getting angry at me winning points from you? You see what I'm getting at? So, so yeah. my opponent, what you, for example, at the pros, it's the very highest level, but if I'm playing someone who is so angry that they break their racket, I want to say, Hmm, you're losing points. Would you, Use your temper that way if you were play, hitting with Roger Federer. Oh no, I would behave properly when I was hitting with the great Roger Federer. So, okay, pretend it's Roger Federer. In other words, so what I'm doing, if I break a racket while I'm hitting with you, Gil, I'm more or less saying, 
what do I, who are you that I should be losing points to you? Okay. I'm insulting the game that way. The I usually point. felt, I usually felt differently when my opponents had. Well, the other thing tantrums. I feel is the other thing I feel when they break the record is like, ha ha, I'm on my path. They're, they're, I, they're, they're melting. Yeah. I, I usually, and I felt like a bad person for this, but when my opponents got really frustrated, I had to hold back from smiling because it would make me, it would almost make me smile. And I had to try to not smile. Of course, how because I they're showing weakness because, uh, right, the thing was I'm, I, I got them. Like, right, they're, they're disintegrating. They're, they're keen to lose. Right. So, right. So, but in a way, so, it, so is it a behavior act or is it a character flaw or what is it? Right. The, the point is, though, that I'm making against kind of the, the ch child thing. I, I grow up watching tennis, watch the pros smash my racket. I'm not going to smash my racket. I'm never going to smash my racket because the pros did. It's 200 bucks. My parents are not going to buy me a new racket, and I'm not going to do that. It doesn't matter how many rackets my idol uh, – I don't think I ever saw Ferrer smash racket. It doesn't matter. My favorite player, Ferrer, growing up, doesn't matter how many rackets he could have smashed. I would not have done it. So I, I just don't believe in this monkey see, monkey do uh, kind of like, uh, you know. Well, wait, but a few minutes ago, you were, you were making it seem like it's all right. I mean, yeah, it's all right for my opponent to do it because in a way it's helping me win the match, but it's not right. For example, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to encourage anyone who's coaching to do it. But yeah, this is a good thing to do. Let out some steam. If I was coaching a pro, I would not have a problem with it. If I'm coaching someone who, who needs to buy their rackets and needs to take care of their equipment correctly, then I would have a problem with it. So it's economics. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, my thing is like, well, that's good for you, Gil. And, and that's, that's how you are. That's how your personality is combined with how you were raised. Um, there are kids out there that just it's in their DNA that they're going to be a little more temperamental. And, you know, seeing someone, their idol smash their racket, it may signal to them that that's okay for them to do. But you know what? you're allowed one racket smash within the rules. So the, the, just like, you know, when somebody sees a, a kid misbehaving, they often blame the parents because they're like, you're not instilling proper discipline. I'm mad at the chair. It's like, follow the rule book. He's allowed one racket smash where he gets a warning and then he can't do it again or else he gets punished. And, and the fact that the chairs get permissive, it exacerbates the problem. Spoken like a parent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's right. So it's this thing about, uh, about discipline and behavior. No, okay, it's a racket, so a guy, but I mean, and, and I, just think, I just think when pros do that, not just the signal, but also it speaks to some weakness on their part. And Novak knows that, he, he's addressed that many times. So I admire him for, for admitting to his deal with it and not just doubling down and saying, well, you go try to win a tennis match. You know, he knows that that's doesn't aid his cause in any, in any real way. But again, it's a, uh, it's a tricky game and it's tricky, you know, that emotional aspect in an individual sport. It's a hard thing. And there are not a lot of ways you can vent anger in tennis. Yeah. Well, unfortunately people took that, that uh, public, you know, the on-court behavior and saw it as an opportunity to couple it with opinion pieces 
about a supposed hypocrisy about something he said in the press conference around prior, where he was asked, and the premise of the question, and anyone who has been in a press conference knows that journalists have a terrible habit of justifying their question before they ask it. So they'll make a statement. And they'll, and in this case, the statement was, hi, Novak, with everything going on with Simone Biles and everything, it was this very kind of, this is why I'm asking the question statement to start the question. And then came the actual question, which was, how do you handle pressure in elite sport? And Novak quotes Billie Jean King and says pressure is a privilege and that it's basically part of part of the deal to be at the top of the sport is to handle pressure. All of that is a paraphrase. Um, and a lot of people in tennis media posted that quote without context, which they knew very well how people were going to take that without the proper context of what the question was. And then suddenly you had in the mainstream media, people who don't usually cover tennis with think pieces um, in the San Francisco Chronicle, in La Equipe, uh, like you have all of these pieces about Djokovic lectures Simone Biles. Djokovic critiques Simone Biles. He was not. It is a lie. And to see it completely get blown up, and for so many people who don't follow tennis, don't watch tennis, but tr but do, are exposed to these mainstream media sources to see to see them be fed this information was really frustrating and really difficult for me to watch. Isn't it strange how our sport tends to generate its biggest crossover headlines when things go awry? You know, when yep. something, there's a statement like that. And, and then otherwise it's like, okay, back, back to tennis. But yeah, I mean, Novak's answer, what he, the question was, how do you handle pressure? And he just said, pressure is privileged. That wasn't, that wasn't the answer to the question. The answer was, that was an answer. The answer just indicated what he acknowledged pressure to be. He didn't say, well, I breathe, I meditate, I do these things. He didn't say how he handled it. And of course, it's not easy. I mean, he just acknowledged that it existed. You're right. And then these things get twisted. And this, by the way, is why I'm so glad I write about a sport because I don't want to write about, treat tennis, treat sports like it's politics. Just like I don't like seeing politics treated like a sport, you know, and in politics, that's what politics is. It's words upon words, back to words. But at least we have a thing that's called performance. So to me, and even with Novak with losing his temper, what the person does outside the lines to me is never more than 49% of what I think about them. I want to see the performance and the tennis. And so, yeah, then it becomes this whole uh, contra-chomp. What do you make of some of that stuff, Amy? I agree wholeheartedly with Gil that... Novak got a really raw deal here. And, and just a reminder that the context around all of this with Novak is that a couple of days prior, he had been asked about his interactions with the other athletes in the Olympic Village. And the thing that they asked him the most about and were asking his advice about on how to deal with pressure. And he was saying, well, here's how I deal with it and, and having these wonderful conversations with them. Them. And so on the backdrop of that, he's asked about pressure again in, in, in the lead up to it is the question about the Golden Slam. Biles was thrown in at the very beginning, not as a question, but sort of just, it, if you read it, 
because I went back and I looked at the journalist Twitter, Twitter who asked the question, even he thinks that that it's been taken out of context. But he throws Biles' name in there, and um, it just he he assumes that Novak is like up to speed and up to date on everything going on with Simone Biles, and he says something like, "Well, you would have heard about Simone Biles, but talking about the calendar slam, blah 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 blah." So I think that Novak got a really raw deal here. It's frustrating. It makes me mad. And um, I'm on Simone Biles, like I'm side, I'm, I'm completely supportive of this young woman's decision to do everything that she's done. And, and I think she's behaved in, in a way that is forthright. And, and she came out and she met the media and she said, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. And I am so supportive of everything that she's done. And I think Novak is probably very supportive of everything that she's done um, because he himself then went on to pull out of the the mixed doubles and i think that like if he didn't support simone biles and and looking out for her own physical health and mental well-being he wouldn't have done that himself so uh totally game of telephone by the media there and and yeah. unfair to novak it is interesting though how novak started the games it's such a great point about the the athletes going to him i mean he, this this started brilliantly for him he was like the most popular guy in the olympic village everyone wanted a piece of him um and you know i i think that's also th that should be noted as well because he was uh he's yeah. really a superstar over there um which was which was cool to see it was cool to see osaka and djokovic felt like almost the dual stars of this uh worldly games with two billion different sports um Let's address just the tennis itself, and then we'll move on to DC. And I know for for our different reasons, we uh, we did struggle to watch as much tennis as we would if you were playing, say, Wimbledon. Um, you know, it, it did. It kind of felt like, first of all, Zverev best of three sets, very difficult. Pablo Carina Busta playing incredible tennis right now, but gassing out, fatigue, too much, just burnout. I think that it was really unfair the way that this was set up by the ITF um, with the conditions the way that they were and you know they players asked for some later start times and I guess they adjusted a little bit but come on this was inhumane and um, Medvedev and and um, Paula Bedosa getting carted off in a wheelchair I mean so when you throw that sort of conditions into the mix I think anything could happen then it became like a game of pinball it was really random agreed and also I'll say it now I've said it before and again Olympic tennis event team event world team tennis yeah. format um, all the disciplines gold medal becomes a mixed match between men and women of different countries what a great showcase for a sport that would be and rather than these silo events that are just feels like, okay, yet another event. I was like almost surprised. I always was jolted when I heard advantage, the player's name. I thought it was supposed to be advantage country to your country, your country's name. That's the whole neat thing about the Olympics. Yeah. And so I, it's still a showcase for tennis, still great for legitimizing the sport in many more countries. I mean, I think in the years to come, we're going to see some pros emerge from countries that previously had tennis sort of like as we've seen with Greece and, 
and look how China has really made its mark on tennis. So that's great. But please, world team tennis style format. And, and maybe then you also make it less of a physical burden for the players also. Because now we're playing like, uh, if you want to make it eight game pro sets, each of them, that's fine too. But not, not these matches and not this whole thing. And, and the geography, this was tough going to Tokyo and the pandemic and all that stuff. Totally. And, and when Novak did pull out of the mixed doubles with Nina Stojanovic, he said, I don't have one injury. I have multiple injuries. And it, I think a lot of that um, emotional fatigue, I think, was also certainly something he was dealing with and something he admitted to dealing with. So it was, uh, was going to be tough for him. We talked about it going in. And then the heat on top of it, which notoriously bothers uh, Novak, was, was insane in Tokyo. A lot of factors. Best of three throw in there because Zverev is just Zverev best of three as an underdog is just really good. I mean, that's just that's the perfect storm for him for some reason. If you look at his career results, um, ready to uh, move on to DC. Nadal practicing. I love how the tournament is, by the way, like selling tickets for Rafa Nadal practices. They're going all in <laughs> on, on Rafa is here. Um, but something he said in his introductory press conference was eye-opening, which is that after Roland Garros, he kind of played off the fact that he wasn't going to play Wimbledon and the Olympics as sort of like a, I'm going to make sure my body's 100%. But what really happened is he was injured, and he had a foot injury that was bad enough that he did not pick up a racket for multiple weeks. It was the same foot injury that has kind of been chronic throughout his entire career, but most prominent in the very early stages of, of, of his career in like 2005 and 2004 uh, with that, that weird bone in his foot. Um, but does that change the way we look at not only Rafa's decision to skip Wimbledon in the Olympics, but also his prospects for the U.S. Open, Joel? Uh, it doesn't really change to me how I think about him not playing Wimbledon in the Olympics, whether he's injured or whether he's tired. He's just 35, and he want, and, and pacing has been so strange these, this last year and a half in the pandemic world of how players pace and space and train and the whole dealing with the stress. I mean, there'll be studies done years from now about how, <clears throat> how various people handle this, handle this kind of cumulative trauma of things related to the covid and uh, so, but on the other hand, going to the U.S. Open, I think we'll really see when we see him play some tennis in D.C. And then we'll see what that's going to look like and even how he's, he's planning to play D.C., Canada, and Cincinnati, correct? That's, look, that's the agenda? He hasn't uh, pulled out of Canada? Uh, no, but we'll see what happens if Nadal goes deep in, in D.C. And then we'll see what what he's going to do. I mean, I don't think he's going to play all three. He wants to get eight matches under his belt between now and the U S open. And uh, that's kind of interesting to think of Nadal. This will be the most time he's ever really spent consecutively in North America, maybe in his career uh, in the, in the summer. I'm not thinking about the Indian Wells, Miami swing. So uh, I I'm, I'm fascinated. I think it's great. I, I can't wait to see him play this summer. It's, gonna, it's exciting. I like watching Nadal play on hard courts. Well, I like them on all courts, but, Exciting to see what he has to do on on hard courts. Mm -hmm. I I thought it was pretty classy of Nadal not to say anything off of after Roland Garros after he lost to Novak. Like, well, yeah, but my foot's killing me. You know, 
um, and just to wait, wait all these months, let Novak have his glory at Wimbledon and, um, and now tell us, yeah, well, actually, I've, I've had this foot thing. I think that's okay. And uh, really looking forward to seeing him play on hard court and, and get his hard court on and, and see what he's got for this stretch. He would have said that about his injury, if I may, for the same reason he wouldn't break a racket. I mean, again, I guess what we yeah. talk about with these things is how one, how, one, how one is raised to treat the game. I think what I want to look at when we're talking about things like the emotional and psychological health of these incredible athletes is not just what's what makes them who they are at this stage, but what went on when they were raised and how they were taught. I mean, I think, and I think again, I think to get back to Novak, he knows in his discipline, you know, it's like he, I really admire how much he was taught to play the game and what he learned, the lessons he learned and various things from the strokes to the music, to thinking about things in a broader way. So I think that's part of the education of a tennis player. And that's what's really thrilling about this game. So, uh, yeah, as far as Nadal, uh, I guess we'll, we'll obviously excited to see. And speaking of conditions, though, D.C. never exactly known as a quality of life temperature tournament. <laughs> but Nadal, hand, Nadal doesn't mind that. Right. That's true. Right. He, he, he tends to like the more lively. I think he thinks it helps his game. So, you know, and he's going to sweat. 30 gallons, even if it's uh, 50 degrees outside. So it doesn't really make a difference for him. Well, that's true. I, mean, I looked at the forecast and it's, you know, it's really not that bad. I don't think this coming week, um, the red, the lot of the United States has been under this heat dome, but on the East coast, we've actually been relatively cool. So I, I don't think it's going to be Tokyo like conditions. Yeah. Well, he didn't play Atlanta because, you know, John Isner, has that one locked up. So uh, <laughs> it's incredible. Well, I don't think he was going to commit to play four, four North American events. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the real heat. That's, he that's why. That. Yeah. That's why Atlanta's the real heat. And, yeah. and you know, I think, uh, wait, Amy, did you grew up in Atlanta and then you went yeah. to school in DC. You you're like the, Oh uh, yeah. You're the expert American, on this. What? Yeah. You, do you add any, uh, any Canadian or Cincinnati um, experience too? <laughs> Uh, Atlanta is the worst. I mean, other than like if there were a tournament in central Florida in, in August or September, Atlanta is just the humidity is like a wall. It's you've never experienced anything like it. Um, I, I went to school in D.C. and it was hot, but not quite as bad as Atlanta. But again, it's, uh, you know, knock wood. I, I think the conditions are going to be totally bearable. Good, good. All right. Well, uh, Nadal. Back on the hard courts, trying to get as many matches in as he can, according to uh, the man himself, just to try to get back into uh, the swing of things. And Novak Djokovic with some uh, very much needed and deserved rest, while Roger Federer gears up and tries to get his knee healthy as well. That'll do it for this episode of Three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. Make sure you're rating, reviewing, subscribing on Apple Podcasts and others. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, like the video, leave a comment, make sure to subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of three.